0: Well, it is great to be with all of you here in Lexington, with everyone watching online, and with all of you at our campuses here across greater Boston. Well, to begin today, I'd like to take us back 28 years to the hilariously funny, yet surprisingly insightful 1991 film called City Slickers. Anybody remember that movie from way back? Well, the movie features the character Mitch, who is played by the actor Billy Crystal, who is uh, experiencing somewhat of a midlife crisis. He's a successful radio ad salesman, and he and his friends are looking for something more in their life. They have achieved all the things that they have been driven toward, but they're still left feeling gnawingly empty, And so they decide to try and disrupt their deeply entrenched, predictable routines and do something way out of the ordinary. They decide to take a two-week expedition to New Mexico to drive cattle from that state north into the state of Colorado. They decide to want to become cowboys. And the tagline of the movie really summarizes the plot line well. Yesterday, they were businessmen. Today, they are cowboys. tomorrow. They'll be walking funny. <laughs> well, the leader of their expedition out west is the uh, character Curly, played by the late actor Jack Pallas. And in the movie, we see that Mitch's urban sensibilities and Curly's no-nonsense cowboy way constantly are clashing At an important moment in the film, these two are off riding alone, trying to find stray cattle, when a really provocative conversation emerges about why Mitch is so unhappy. Let's listen in on this conversation that has words that are very resonant with the teachings of Jesus, more so than these characters or perhaps even the movie's writers knew. Curly... Do you know what the secret of life is, he asked Mitch. No, what? This. He holds up one finger. Your finger? (laughs) One thing, just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean Jack. That's great, but what's the one thing? Well, that's what you've got to figure out. Well, today in our time together, that's what I want for us to explore. Is life really about one thing? And if so, what is that one thing? And if we determine what that is, how will that shape our lives personally, our families collectively, and our church corporately? So let's take a moment right now to just imagine that someone was going to look at your life, how you spent your time, how you spent your energy, what your family was all about, If they were to look at your life, what would they conclude your one thing would be, or your family's one thing? Not what you would say it is or intend it to be, but what your one thing would actually be. See, this is so essential for us to understand, because whether we are aware of it or not, our lives are moving in a certain direction, and there is one thing, one overarching purpose that our lives are about, whether We've consciously chosen that or not. And that one thing shapes everything. So what do you want your one thing to be? And what do you think your one thing actually is? Well, if you were hoping for a pretty easy-to-listen-to sermon here today that just was inspiring and didn't cause you to have to do a lot of self-examination, then you know by now that that is not this sermon. And we're deciding to jump right into the deep end tonight, or this morning, because for two reasons. One, if we really desire to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live lives that are marked by true belonging, the kind of relational closeness that we long for and our world is desperately hungry for, then we need to make sure the main thing in our life is the right one thing. And then secondly, I want to get into this probing question with you here today because, in case you are not aware, this is my last Sunday as a pastor here at Grace Chapel. Thanks. After, after seven and a half years of just really wonderful life and ministry that we have so enjoyed, have been so appreciative for, We've sensed the Lord leading us to a new endeavor, and I've accepted the call to become the new lead pastor of Crossway Christian Church, uh, which is located in southern New Hampshire. They have two locations in Nashua and then one in Milford, New Hampshire, and it's a really wonderful community that we're excited to be a part of, but know that we are deeply, deeply saddened to be leaving this community that we have loved so much When this uh, opportunity first came uh, uh, upon me, we weren't interested in it, but because we knew this was such a strong faith community, we prayed that God would rise up a great person to be their next leader, someone who was godly, someone who was was really smart and wise and insightful, (laughs) somebody who was really funny, (laughs) somebody who was dashingly handsome. And sometimes the Lord gives us the exact opposite of what we pray for. And so they ended up here with me. Now, ordinarily, I would introduce myself at a sermon like this by saying I'm the Lexington campus pastor, but that position no longer belongs to me, uh, but to my my longtime uh, mentor and supervisor and dear, dear friend, the Rhodes Scholar himself, Pastor Richard Rhodes. And we couldn't be more grateful for that. Make some noise for him wherever you are. So since I didn't really have a title in this time of transition, Richard has been affectionately referring to me as the lame duck. (laughs) I said, ouch, man, that hurts. For all these years, you've just been telling me I'm lame, but now I'm the lame duck. Now, he would never say something uh, as mean as that. But uh, a couple Thursdays ago, the staff did really an amazingly meaningful send-off lunch for myself and my family, and during that time, Pastor Brian reflected back on my seven and a half years of ministry and teaching, and he said, throughout all of the different messages that you have given, this one underlying theme, this thread that's kind of been woven throughout them, there's one thing that almost all of your sermons have pointed to. And that theme that has been implicit in almost all that I have done here with great intentionality, I want to explicitly go after here today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. And we'll look at chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As we enter into the home of a woman named Martha, who has her sister with her, and they are hosting Jesus and his disciples And this is a really critical conversation for us if we want to know what's the one thing that our lives should be all about. So if you would, would you stand with me as we listen to God's very words this morning? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. These are God's very words. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the passage begins here with Jesus and his disciples traveling. Uh, This portion of Luke's gospel is known as the travel narrative, chapters 9 through 19, that chronicle Jesus' journey with his disciples from Galilee, the northern region of Israel, where Jesus and his disciples spent most of their time in ministry, heading south to the city of Jerusalem. And along the way, the author Luke accents what Jesus' one thing is with this phrase, going to Jerusalem. We keep hearing how Jesus is going to Jerusalem. So why was that such an important thing? Well, this location would be the culmination of Jesus' life and work and ministry. This is where it would occur. History's greatest act was going to take place in one of history's most renowned and strategic cities. So what did Jesus intend to do then in Jerusalem? Well, if we look back at the very onset of an inauguration of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, we find him about to teach a group of people, and he unrolls the scroll from the prophet Isaiah and reads these words which he says are being fulfilled in their hearing that day. Let's read these from Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news or gospel, a gospel message to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the beginning to ending of Jesus' life and ministry had a focused resolve. He was to bring good news to those in need. He was to release those held captive by their sinful desires, by their previous mistakes, by the trauma that they've experienced in their past and from the clutch of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He wanted to release them. He came to help the physically and spiritually blind learn to see reality as it truly is and not how we often perceive things to be. He came to let those oppressed by grief. Greed and injustice go free. And Jesus would do this in a way that no one anticipated or expected. He used the very instrument of death, the cross, to defeat death. That great fear that seems to plague our lives and leaves them littered with fear and anxiety. He journeys to Jerusalem to set us free. One thing. Now, nearby Jerusalem, the text goes on to say, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. The certain village, we learn, is the town of Bethany. It was located just about two miles outside of Jerusalem and served as like a ministry outpost for Jesus and his disciples, kind of a place of respite away from the action of Jerusalem. There is where Jesus raised Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, from the dead. And this foreshadows the greater resurrection which is to come when Jesus conquers death and sin in the grave by rising from the dead that beautiful Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. So during this visit to Bethany, Jesus is welcomed into the home of Martha and her sister Mary. So what do we know about Martha? Martha. Well, explicitly, the text tells us, as we just heard, that Martha was the sister of Mary and Lazarus. And then from John eleven five, we learn that Jesus loved Martha and her sister dearly. And then John 12 tells us that she was known and appreciated among the disciples for her service and hospitality. But more implicitly, I think we can imagine that Martha was probably the responsible older sister of Mary, as I like to think of it. Uh, She's probably the kind of person who follows the rules, does what is right, and might possibly find some of her self-worth wrapped up in being the kind of person who has the capacity to do what needs to get done when it needs to get done. She probably enjoyed being seen and viewed as a resourceful, highly competent person, which I know many of us appreciate being viewed in that way. The text goes on to say that Martha had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. So, what can we know about Mary? Well, in John 11 and 12, we can learn some more about her and begin to construct a brief biographical sketch of her life. She's also, not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus, not to be confused with Mary Magdalene, or Jesus, Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, who I think also was named Mary. It's very confusing, and the Lord did not consult me, but it would have been a lot easier if he raised up some other women with names than Mary to do some of his work in those early years of work. Now, here's what John 11 tells us about Mary. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this scene of Jesus' anointing for burial is a profound, beautiful sight. Uh, John tells it like this in John 12, 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, their town, uh, to Lazarus, uh, to whom he had raised from the dead. And there they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just imagine that scene for a moment. Mary doing this extravagantly generous act toward Jesus. An act that some might have found to be over the line. Now, from these scenes that we learn of these women, we could probably safely say that Martha was probably more of the rule keeper and Mary was maybe more of that boundary-pushing person. I can imagine her saying, I'm sorry, before she would ask for permission. This, is, this act of anointing Jesus in an intimate fashion like this undoubtedly might have been seen as rather scandalous to some people, but Mary was willing to take that risk, to look like that kind of person because she cared far more about Christ than she did about her reputation. And so she was willing to do an extravagantly reckless act of love like this toward him. So that's Mary and Martha. Now, one of the temptations that we have in interpreting a passage like this is to kind of reduce it to like a good guy versus bad guy scenario. Mary being the good woman and Martha being the bad one. But I don't think that is what the Scripture is pointing us to at all. If we take a moment just to leave the pages of the Scriptures to look at the history of the church and to draw from the deep wells of church tradition, we learn that these two women represented two of the most important streams in the history of our church. Mary represented what has been called the contemplative life. This means that she desired to be with God. That is what was very characteristic of her life in this contemplative tradition, being with God. Martha, on the other hand, represented what some call the active life. This is doing for God. As you can imagine... You can't just have being with God without doing for God, and you can't have doing for God without being with God. We need the tradition and the influence of both Mary and Martha in our lives. If you are really focused on being with God without doing for God, you run the risk of having a very consumeristic faith where you just want to receive things from God and have these emotional experiences without being willing to sacrifice and love our neighbors in the way that they need it most. But on the other hand, if you are more inclined to be a doer for God and don't spend enough time being with Him, then you run the risk of burnout, of being dangerously depleted, and when that happens, resentment can easily well up in your soul where you look at everyone else who isn't working as hard as you are and you start to look down upon them and start to think that you are better than you are. And if you do that long enough, what will start to creep into your faith is bitterness. I think a lot of us in our world, in this kind of greater Boston area, are more inclined to be those who do for God rather than be with God. Our doing for God might like look like this. This is kind of doing for God and our being with God might, might be a lot smaller. It might be out of proportion. And when that happens, our lives just take a really haphazard kind of all over the place shape and form. They're unpredictable. You, maybe we're heading in the right direction, but we take a very roundabout way to to get there. But instead of a life that looks like that, when our being with God is much more in proportion to our doing for God, when, then our life can have a, a strong coherence to them. Our, our lives can be going in a singular direction that the Lord would want for us. We can be moving in an integrated sort of way of our lives. So as you think about your life right now, is your doing for God a lot higher than your being with God? If so, you might be in jeopardy. You might be in trouble. I like to say that the best doing for God flows out of deep being with God. The best doing for God flows out of a deep being with him. Another way to put it that I like to say is you need to marry before you Martha. You need to marry before your Martha. Be with God. And don't think that self-care is a selfish act. Self-care is never a selfish act when you are using that time to cultivate your life with Christ. So now that we have a better picture of who these two women were, let's take a closer look at Martha's conversation with Jesus. So after noticing Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, we learn this. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. Well, what we see emerging as Martha's issue, and I think it's an issue that impacts many of us personally and our homes collectively, is not so much what she does, but the manner and way in which she does it. See, homemaking work is even though it's not often compensated, is meaningful, it is good, it is holy work that honors God and can inspire others. It is inescapable to life and it is integral to a flourishing faith. Not only so, but hospitality, welcoming guests into our home, is an essential gospel practice, a practice that requires tremendous effort and sacrifice and attention to detail. All things I imagine Martha was devoted to as she made the preparations necessary to host Jesus and his disciples of all people. So what Martha is doing is not out of line whatsoever, but the way that she does it is out of order. One of the clearest signs that your inner life might be jumbled and disordered is when you start telling Jesus what you think he should do. Now, the word that Luke uses to describe Mary's inner state or being is this word distracted, which in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, is the word perispao. Would you say that with me? Perispao, and it simply means over-occupied. Soon as I read that definition, I felt convicted. My life feels very over-occupied by all that I'm scrolling through, all the different information that's coming into my head. I'm overoccupied. There are too many things in, in a similar fashion that Martha is attempting to do. Too many things that are pulling her in opposing directions. Too many values that are functioning in a competing way and not a complementary way. This overoccupation is jeopardizing Martha's capacity for experiencing this one thing that will truly help her life and her work and her family thrive. Now, this is a good moment for us just to hit the pause button. And do a little personal inventory on us and our families. Perhaps the reason that we aren't experiencing the true belonging that we so long for and our families and communities need is because we are overoccupied with too many good things. Not necessarily bad things, but we're overoccupied with too many competingly good, competing good things. Things like Like our family and faith or appetites and appearances or recreation and relationships or causes and career or sports and school. If you were able to simplify one area of your life right now, maybe stop doing something so that you could do the one thing with a greater focus. What might that be? What could you eliminate to help declutter your life and your soul so that you might be able to enjoy the God-given relationships we were made for more? If someone was to examine how you and your family devote your time and energy and your best effort, what would they say that your one thing was? Does the one thing that you intend, does that align with what people would see? Well, if you haven't for some time, this might be the moment to do a little family meeting or get away to be with God in some time of reflection to listen to what the Spirit might prompt in you. But maybe right now, it's just not realistic for your family to stop doing anything. I wish I could stop changing diapers, but that's not going to make the problem go away. So if you can't stop what you're doing, then maybe there is a way for you to do one thing while you do the many things that you have to do. I think that's the invitation that Jesus is giving to Martha and perhaps that's the invitation for us today as well. We'll return to this, but let's take a closer look now at Martha's question to find out what this question that she poses to Jesus says about her. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Well, often the questions that we raise out of frustration can be very self-revealing. They can hold up a mirror for us to see the blind, area, blind spots of our lives that we never notice. Now, a personality assessment that I really enjoy that is pretty renowned for helping you see and discover your blind spots is called the Enneagram. Ennea stands for nine, and gram stands for type. It's sweeping the, the Christian community these days and essentially boils down to the fact that, that there's a contention that God has created everybody with one of nine personality types. And, and uh, One of the things you should never, and they're kind of like primary colors that have infinite varieties, but one of the things you should never do when it comes to using the Enneagram is project what you think somebody is uh, to them. You should let them discover that for themselves. But even though that's a basic rule, I'm going to break it today by giving you my opinion of which of these nine personality types I think Martha is. I suggest that she is a type one, this person called the reformer or the perfectionist. Now, this is the kind of person who, when they see something that's off in life or in the world around them or in their space, they do something about it. They raise their voice. They say, this is not how things should be, and they want to enact change as a result. Ones are often people who do some of the best work fighting injustice and oppression and and, uh, righting the wrongs of our world. We need healthy type ones. Now, one of the things that I think is, makes this Enneagram assessment more valuable than the others out there is it does a couple of key things. One, it helps to reveal what our shadow side is when we use our gifts for maybe our own ends instead of for God, or when our greatest gifts become our biggest liabilities. It helps reveal our shadow sides. And then secondly, it also helps point a way forward, a way home, so that we can be the most whole and holy people that God has designed us to be. And in Jesus' response to Martha, he does both of these things. He helps to reveal her shadow side that she can't see, and he also wants to point a better way forward for her and for us as we try and follow him. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. Now this word for worried in, in this verse is the Greek word meromnao. Would you say that one with me? Merimnao, it means being anxious in a way that divides up, divides us up. The other word for distract is a different one that we, than we saw earlier, and this time it's the word turbazzo, which means disordered, jumbled together in the mind with too many cares. How, might, how many of you might be feeling or experiencing some, some turbazzo or some marimnao in your own inner life or your family's life these days? What often comes out of someone when they are distracted, when they are disordered, when they are divided? When I see people that are very much in that state, the thing I often see come out of them or come out of me is anger, is anger. And that's the shadow side of a type one person is anger. If you struggle with that, or you find yourself feeling perpetually frustrated with someone, perhaps it's not because they are doing something that is so wrong, but perhaps your inner life is out of sorts, is disordered. Your active life is way out of proportion to your contemplative life, your being with God. See, Jesus wants to free us from this destruction of distraction and being divided, and so he offers Martha and us a better way forward. He doesn't just say, stop worrying and stop being distracted. He says to replace those things with this focus. Verse 42. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken from her. So what's the secret to life, is Curly contended? One thing. Not many things. One thing. Now, Jesus is not telling us just to do one thing all day long because that would get boring and redundant. As we look at his life, he did a variety of things. But I believe he is inviting us that while we do many things, we make one thing our ultimate aspiration and focus and end. So what is that one thing? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly like in the form of an answer to a test question. He instead gives us a picture And it's of Martha's sister Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Don't you hate it when your sister or your sibling gets it right and you get it wrong here? Well, this image of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus is a symbol, a rich symbol of discipleship. Or as Dallas Willard called it, apprenticeship to Jesus. If you've been around here for a while, you knew I had to quote Dallas Willard Willard in my last sermon here at Grace, right? Well, apprentices of Jesus make their one thing, learning to live their everyday, ordinary lives the way Jesus would do it if he was you. Just imagine Jesus was gonna take over your life right now, starting this moment. How would he be listening to this message if he was you? That's what apprentices of Jesus are always thinking. There's three characteristic acts of an apprentice of Jesus. One, they are being with God. They do that so, secondly, they can become more like Christ. We become like those we spend the most time around. So if you want to be more like Jesus and less like yourself or like those around you, spend more time with him. And we want to become like Christ so that, thirdly, we can do what Jesus did. This is the contemplative life flowing into a very beautiful, active life. And we can do this no matter what our job or career is or season or stage of life. One of my heroes in the faith was someone who is well-known now in Christian circles but wasn't known in his own day at all. His name was Brother Lawrence, and hundreds of years ago, he was called the Lord of the Pots and Pans. He was a dishwasher, but while he was washing many dishes, cleaning up many tables, he was able to do one thing among those many things, and he called it practicing the presence of God. God. He was able to be with God even while he did things for others. And if he was able to do such menial work in a God-centered way, then how much more should we be able to do any kind of holy work and all work that God's given us is holy work. But how much more can we be with God while we're doing whatever he has given us to do? So, and what did Jesus continually do at the core of his life and ministry? Wasn't it serving others? The scriptures tell us that the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the freedom of many. And what do we find Martha doing when she has this conversation with Jesus She was serving as well. And so Jesus doesn't want to stop Martha from serving or doing this kind of work around the house whatsoever, but he does want to free her from serving in such a way that she's doing it to try and earn her approval or God's approval or to do it to prove her worth or to do her work in such a way that makes herself look better or more qualified than others. God wants to free her from that grip which is a never-ending abyss so that she could be freed to love God and others with a great sense of peace and joy. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to do all these things to prove your worth to me. You are already worth everything to me. I love you so much. Just be my apprentice. Be with me. And the life that you've desired will flow out of you. That's what I want to offer and extend to you. And that's what God wants to offer and extend to each and every one of us. He wants to free us from all of the worrying, all the distraction in our lives that grips us because we, Want to prove ourselves, He wants to release us from that so that we can do whatever we do as an act of love. And that's where real joy, that's where real life, that's where real peace is found. So, what might this mean for our homes and our families? Let me summarize it like this We experience true belonging as we resist worry and distraction and become more present to God and present to others. Presence is our word for this week. As we choose one thing, apprenticeship to Jesus, we will undoubtedly become more present to God and that in turn will enable us to be more present to those who matter to us most. Wouldn't you love for your home to become a place of presence instead of such a wreck of distraction? Wouldn't you love to be able to truly be with God and with those you love most under your own roof? Yes, you can still work hard at career or sports or the arts or whatever you are passionate about, but what is better than making a name for yourself or climbing the ladder or achieving whatever you are after? What is better than all those things is being Jesus' apprentice and raising your family to value that above everything else is undoubtedly indispensable to cultivating a home where true belonging reigns. So is there some underlying desire or motivation in your family that you need to deprioritize so that the one thing that Jesus says is necessary becomes, in reality, the main thing that your family is about and doesn't just intend, but does? Well, as we wrap up, the one thing that Pastor Brian said just pervaded all of my teachings has been this very invitation, Jesus' extension to us to become his apprentices, no matter who we are or what we have done. Because if we be with God to become like Christ and do what he has done, we will experience the abundant, overflowing life, the life to the fullest, life to the limit, that Jesus wants every single person on this planet to experience regardless of their past, regardless of their present, regardless of the trajectory of their future. All that can change as we say, God, I want you to be my one thing. So Grace Chapel family, this community that we have loved so, so much over these last seven and a half years, this is my final charge to you. Choose to live for one thing. Because there is only one who is worth living for. Amen? Choose to live for one thing because there is only one who is worth living for. Jesus, he is worth any sacrifice that you might be called to make. He is worth any reprioritization of your life. He is worth any heartache or any suffering. He is worth any no that you are reluctant to say because life with Jesus is so much better than the best thing you could ever want for yourself. I wish I could prove that to you, but you will only know that as you try and live this out and I know you will experience that my friends. So in a world of distraction and our cultural moment where we are constantly being divided, I believe living for one thing is the greatest challenge that maybe any of us face. I know my shadow side is toward distraction And so years ago, I wrote this challenge to help inspire me and remind me that there is only one who's truly worth living for. And let me leave you with these words. This one thing I do, this one thing I think, this one thing I breathe, this one thing I am, leaving the rest behind, out of my sight, out of my mind, out of my wants, out of my time, for there is no time. You think there's room for more, but space does not permit for even two. That's why it's this one thing I do, my one thing is you. Not you and this or that or him or her behind or before. Not you plus performance or pleasure, possessions or popularity, not you plus Diversions, distractions, recognitions, rewards, not you plus, outdoing, outshining, outlasting, outstanding, not you plus, no, just one thing you, more and more and through and through, inside and out, within and about you, 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 for there's no need for more. You are all, you are everything, you are love. Yet I long for more, seek more, thirst and stretch and grasp and cry out for more, so much more, to taste and see and be still and know and live and move and have all my being wrapped up in the one thing whose presence gives life, brings life, makes life, is life. There is one thing I do because there is only one thing to do, one thing or nothing, one thing I ask of the Lord and that I would seek just You. Just one thing. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to share this word one more time. I pray for every person here who might find themselves waiting in worry and distraction. I pray that your spirit would come upon them to help them live for the one thing that's most important, more important than anything else, and that is to be your apprentice. My friends, if you're here today and have never made that commitment, I'm going to give you that opportunity to say, Jesus, I want you to be my one thing, the one thing I live for more than anything else if you've never made a commitment like that, I invite you just to whisper the words to Jesus, be my one thing. Be my one thing. Jesus has freed you from your past, forgiven you from your sins by his death and his resurrection. And so even if you don't feel worthy to make Jesus your one thing, Jesus has made you worthy. Just tell him, be my one thing. And if you're here today and your focus has kind of gotten off. Just draw right back to Christ. Don't beat yourself up over what's happened. Start afresh right now. And so, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill each and every person here with what they need to take the next steps to live a life of freedom, to live a life of joy, to live a life of purpose and power and love, so that the whole world would know that you are the only true God, a God who is love. So we thank you so much for this day and this time together. And it's in Christ's great name that everyone said together, amen.